Tonight, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, which deals with God's presence um, in kind of a unique way. I remember one of, um, one of my favorite stories about uh, one of my kids, my oldest, Keaton. He's like 14 now. And when he was a little guy, he must have been, man, I don't know, four. I remember exactly where we were. We were driving in Denver. We were heading north, heading kind of, we were like south Denver. <clears throat> and it was one of these days where it was real cloudy, like cloud cover. You, 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 you can't see the sun at all. So we're driving, and he and his little sister, Brielle, who was like two at the time, are in the back. And, and all of a sudden, Keaton, in this cute little voice, goes, I, I see God. I see God. And he's just like, I, I see God. I see God. You know, we're thinking, oh, man, is this the end? For, you know, like, what's going on? What's happening? And, and we look over, and have you ever had that experience where, like, the clouds open up? It's just this beam of light just, like, shoots through. You know what I mean by that? And, and in, in his four-year-old mind, God's in heaven, and there's this phenomenological experience he's having that he's never had before of this powerful light. And as a four-year-old mind, he's thinking, I, I, I see I see God. And so it leads to all of these conversations. Like, where, where is God? Is, is God in the kitchen? Yeah, yeah, God's in the kitchen. Well, is he, like, if I were to go outside and yell up in the tree, is God up in the tree? Yeah, God's up in the, God's up in the tree. Well, is he at school? Well, what about when I'm at school? Is he still at home? And you know these conversations with, with kids where you, you're talking about this idea that God's presence, it's everywhere at all times, interfacing at every single moment with every single person. So, so God is everywhere, but he's also distinct from his, his creation, his world. This, this is what King David, the psalmist, was kind of scrubbing in his mind as he was thinking about this reality. This is a Psalm 139, verse 7. And David asks these reflective questions. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And so David is just ruminating on this. He's, he's mulling it over at his mind. He's, he's thinking, reflecting, and then poetically expressing in this prayer to God uh, this amazement at God's presence. In fact, I would suggest this, this um, theme or concept of God's presence is really key from like page one to the very last page. I mean, think about it. Genesis 3, what is it that's, that's lost? God's presence, right? His presence is lost. At the very end, we see not us going up, but God's Revelation 22, God's presence coming out. He says, now the, the presence of God will be with men. We will live together. And everywhere in between, it's God relentlessly saying, I'm going to insist upon my presence being with you, right? The, the tabernacle, the temple, what's it about? I'm going to come live in your presence, we see kind of the fulcrum, the turning point in the middle with the incarnation, we call it, right? The, the presence of God. What is it that we, the name that we oftentimes recite around Christmas, he is called Emmanuel, which means? Yeah, his presence. He's with us. And then Jesus is after his death and burial and resurrection and, and before his ascension, he says, I'm going to send another 
to be present with you, right? The Holy Spirit. And the big difference is, is that Jesus says, I'm Emmanuel with you. He's going to be within you. And so he's going to dwell, not, not in a physical temple like that, but in this temple, in our, us. He's actually going to dwell inside us. He says, in your heart. And your heart is like, it's like the core of your identity, the seedbed of your personhood. He says, that's where I'm going to dwell. That's where I'm going to start affecting. That's what I'm going to make new. So this concept of God's presence, it's absolutely key. And all of this brings us to our verse tonight. This, this idea that um, it's, this verse is used oftentimes um, when we talk about prayer. Let's come together, fellowship. We, you know, we had a prayer concert recently, right? And so oftentimes people will employ this verse and say things like, where two or three are gathered, right, in your name, your presence, or fellowship time, or in uh, worship, you know, whatever it might be. One of my favorite ones is when you have a low attendance, Right? Small group, you go, well, hey, where two or three are gathered, like we can still do it, you know, kind of thing. This idea that, as Matthew 18, 20 says, and if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up or turn them on if it's on your smartphone or iPad or whatever. Matthew 18, 20, uh, Matthew is, is quoting Jesus. This is couched in his uh, longer sermon of the Sermon on the Mountain. He says, for where two or three are gathered... Together in my name, I am there among them. Or as the King James says, I am in, in the midst of them. So here's the question. For what purpose, because Jesus doesn't say this all the time. I mean, he's saying it kind of uniquely here. For what purpose is the church coming together that Jesus uniquely promises, I'm going to be in your presence then. And I need you to know that. Like, that's important to know. Um, is it prayer? Is it worship? Is it fellowship? Is it potlucks? No. <laughs> it's none of those things. But before we answer that, let's be really, really clear on something here. When believers do gather to pray, to worship, to fellowship, to potluck, to go see a movie, to whatever it might be, can they take confidence that God's presence is with them? Of course. Of course. Well, some of Jesus' last words at the end of this book, Matthew 28, you know, the Great Commission, where Jesus kind of says, okay, here's marching orders. <laughs> the very last thing he says is, remember, and, and, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he promises his presence. Or back earlier, same book, Matthew 6, um, Jesus says, in fact, when you go and pray all by yourself in like the back room of your house and you're all alone, Father hears you presence is there too. So we can be absolutely confident that God's presence is always, 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 always with us. That's not in question. The question is, he's saying something very uniquely here that we miss if we just, oh, he's just saying, you know, God will be, a, you know, we'll be together if, if we're all together. Um, and so um, what I want us to see is that as, as we go through these, these weeks, and I think we've seen this, it's not, that the, it's not that the conclusion is always wrong, right? Remember the week we talked about, I think it was, um, I think it was Pastor Tim who, who talked about uh, Jeremiah's passage, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And we've said all of those things, God does know plans for us. He does have plans to prosper, not necessarily our definition of prosper. But that's not the passage to go to. And here's why that's important. 
if you've got a bad means of getting to the right end, do you think eventually using those bad means you're going to come to a bad end? I think you will. I will. <laughs> so it's really important, my method of, of interpreting a message from God. It's really, really important that we do that. And we, I can, here's, here's another danger. I can also come to some goofy interpretations. Because I've, I've heard people talk about this verse like this, where they say, where two or three are gathered, I am there. And if, if this is a good method, I could, I could easily come to the conclusion that I kind of have the ability to summon God, right? If I get you here and you here, all of a sudden, Jesus has to appear, right? Like, like summoning a witness to a courtroom. Or even worse, like, like a witch or a medium would supposedly summon a spirit or something. That's bad theology. <laughs> There's no action I do that, that summon God's presence. As David said, you know, I can't get anywhere. I can't get away from it. So this verse is, is telling us something else, and I want us to see it's really, really beautiful. It's really powerful, and it's really important as we seek to be the church. And so there's a, there's a specific nuance to Matthew 18 here that's actually really important, and it's not about Christian fellowship or any of those different things. What it's about, maybe surprisingly, it's about conflict. It's about interpersonal sin in relationships with others, and it's about church discipline. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I'm starting a new kind of humanity. I'm doing a new thing. I'm, I'm, I'm literally creating a new kind of humanity. And in this new kind of community, you're going to have some problems. You're going to have conflict. You're going to sin against one another. And you're going to have a lot of issues. So I want to talk with you. I want to instruct my, my apprentices. How do you handle those situations when they come up? Because they will come up. So take, take a look at your Bibles. And before we go through the text itself, this can be really, really important. This is one of those good tips. When you're reading scripture, especially if something's a little unclear, this is really helpful. Look at the broader context, okay? Um, this is easier if you have a hard cover Bible than digitally, but you still might be able to see it. What's the parable that Jesus tells immediately before this? Just look at the editor's notes. What is it? The lost sheep. Okay, so here's the question. What's the theme of the lost sheep? It's restoring someone who has gone away, right? He leaves the 99 and he goes and he seeks out the one. That's the parable that Matthew records. Matthew is weaving this together very purposefully. So the parable that comes before it, the theme is going to restore someone who's gone off the rails. What's the parable that follows it? The unmerciful servant. Think about the theme. The theme is being willing to cancel someone's offense to you. Being willing to forgive someone's offense to you because you have been forgiven. So broader context, keep that in mind. Those are, think of like screens going on in the background as Jesus is doing this teaching. Those are the two screens as far as that, that Matthew wants you to have in mind. Pictures. Okay, the big picture is going on in the back of your mind as you read this text. Okay, so now let's take a look at this. And if you want to first blank to fill in there on the notes if you're, if you're filling in. The themes that are present in this context are forgiveness, restoration, 
and reconciliation. Those are the themes, forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. That's the flavor that's going to help us understand this passage that can seem a little odd, maybe. So let's look at the text here. Um, And we'll, we'll see several practical steps that should be taken to reconcile, to restore a relationship that's broken because of sin. It's Matthew 18, 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So the first step, if you're taking notes, the first step is a private step. Um, Essentially, Jesus is teaching interpersonal sin, conflict, should not be ignored in this community, in Jesus' communities. It should not be swept under the rug. It should not be ignored or dismissed because Christians should be committed to really healthy, robust relationships. Where, where health is truly there. And see, I would suggest this is a gospel issue. This is not a second, oh, it's, you know, it's somewhat. This is a center gospel issue, and here's, here's what I mean by that. Why did Jesus die? So that we would be reconciled, forgiven, reconciled to God, first, and then secondly, reconciled to one another. This is a central gospel issue. We're called to be reconciled to each other. So essentially, this is how we protect, this is how you protect, this is how I protect our relationships from sin because it's there. It will happen. I will sin against you. I will, offend, I will do things sinful that damage my relationship with you. And Jesus is saying, this is how you apply gospel grace to a weight that brings reconciliation to this new humanity that I'm creating. And so Jesus describes the first step of personal, uh, private conversations between Christians. And the goal, the goal of that is what? What does it say in the passage? It's to restore. It, you've won them over, right? You've, you've, you've won. The goal is restoration of relationship. Now, think about this. Why do you, I mean, just practically speaking, why do you suppose Jesus starts by saying, keep the circle really small, one-on-one. Don't, don't bring in you know, Aunt Mildred. Don't, don't call the pastor right away. Don't talk to your small group leader. Don't. Why, do you see, why do you suppose, practically speaking, for healthy community, he says, start, start with it one-on-one. Why do you suppose it is? What's that? Okay, have you ever, um, what, what happens when you bring other people into it and then that person brings someone else into it and they make a quick phone call that spreads really quickly? The word gossip, right? You know, you know how absolutely corrosive God, as a father of a middle school and elementary school girl, I, I want to crush gossip. It is it's horrible. It's so awful. It's so, it's so destructive. And, it, and it's worse oftentimes when we do it under the guise of, would you please pray for Susie? You know what's going on. You know, and then you got this juicy little <laughs> tidbit. He says, keep the circle really small so that if you deal with it, if you win them over, okay, they've sinned against you, they've done something, you win them over, you, you agree to never talk about it outside of that circle, and you say, 
It's settled. It's forgiven. Reconciliation happens. Other people don't know about it. You've been truly, truly reconciled to that person. Ideally, this is how things can be resolved. But Jesus knows, because we're sinful, that is not always going to happen. And so he says, if you do this, if you try this, if you go to the person in Jesus-centered love, in a really attempt not to be right, but to be reconciled, and it doesn't happen, then he says, uh, then it's step two. And step two is witnesses. Witnesses. Let me read for you Matthew, six, uh, Matthew 18, verse 16. <clears throat> he says, if he won't listen, take, what does he say? Take what? Okay, that's going to come up again later. Take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three, because you're, you're one of them now, so it's two or three, um, witnesses, every fact may be established. Now, I think there's probably a couple different reasons for that. Okay, why do you, you know, why do you not just jump immediately to, I'm going to jump on Twitter and I'm going to start you know, saying things about the person or jump on Facebook. Why the, why the one or two? This is only two or three, but well, it underscores the seriousness, the importance of reconciliation. But I think also, um, witnesses can... Um, ensure that the confer, a confrontation is done well. You know what I mean by that? Um, why is it that a married couple who fight like cats and dogs and they yell and they raise their voice and they curse, why is it that when they sit down with a counselor they can restrain themselves? <laughs> you, ever, you ever seen that? You ever experienced that, right? Where all of a sudden, oh, all of a sudden it's really easy to hold my tongue, you know, and not call you a blankety blank. Why? Because there's someone else there. There's accountability as to what I say, I can't leave and be like, oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> Bringing in other parties just provides accountability, and it really gives me a steadiness to say, okay, I'm going to have this conversation in a way that's honoring to you as a person, and it's a check for me so that I don't do it in a way that is dishonoring to you. Um, and also, I think the, these two or three witnesses can serve as kind of more of an objective, and that's what he brings up here, can kind of be an um, objective third parties to the situation where they come along, same goal, we want to we help the process of reconciliation, forgiveness, kind of bringing, bringing this back together. So, so Jesus consistently teaches that unrepentant sin, it's a really serious matter. It's a really, 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 really serious matter in the church. The Apostle Paul, later, in uh, his letter to the, the church that was in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians um, 5, 6, he says, when you have these conflicts in the church and there's sin, uh, interpersonal sin, whatever, those sorts of matters, he says, handle, handle it quickly and expediently, because, in his words, a little yeast will work through the whole batch. Think about that. Here's what he's saying, what happens if you don't do what Jesus is saying about what this Jesus-centered community should look like. Number one, the witness of the church gets drugged through the mud, right? Because when it turns into this gossip thing, I mean, people outside of, you know, you work at a school or, you, you know, you, you work selling cars or wherever you work, and, and, and they hear you talk, oh, yeah, this person in my church and blah, blah, blah. What does that do to the witness of the church where Jesus said, the way that people will know you've been with me and you're my students is by how you love each other, right? So the witness is absolutely destroyed when we don't do that. It can also be destructive to just the relationships 
within the Christian community. And I would suggest it, it even gives like a license to sin to people who see it and it goes unchecked, right? Well, I mean, you know, at least I'm not doing that, right? I might, you know, sure, I might be doing this, but I'm not doing that. It, it can easily give us a license to sin because it's, eh, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, there's worse that. I am fantastic at rationalizing my own sins. I'm really a genius at it. I really am. And th- that's one of the ways, right, as well. My goodness, at least I'm not him. At least I'm not doing what she's doing, you know. That's how it can give us that kind of license to sin. So like before, if the incident is resolved at step two, um, and those who, who are involved should absolutely rejoice, right? They should celebrate. Why? Because you've won your brother over, right? You've you've, you've brought reconciliation. There should be celebration. There should be rejoicing. There should once again saying, we're not going to talk about it outside of the circle. Four of us, we're not talking about this issue outside because you know what that does. It creates the same thing as before. Restoration is there. The, but if, if it's an issue that the person is still resistant to receiving forgiveness, Jesus says there is a step three. Matthew 18, verse 17. If he pays no attention to them, who's that? The two or three, right? The witnesses. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. So step three, church leadership. Church leadership. And I would even expand that to, um, I, I would suggest that I would add to there, that we should add to that. Everyone who has relationship with the person, not just church leadership, everyone who's, Involved and who has relationship with this person. This is the widest possible circle of accountability. Now, note, listen, this is super important. I would say it's here that the spiritual maturity of a church is going to be put to the test. This is the place where this is going to test the spiritual maturity of a church. Here is where everyone who has relationship with the individual, with the unrepentant person, they can all reach out to him or her to try to bring them back, to try to win them back over. That's the lost sheep. Remember, what's the parable before? Going after them. That informs how this goes about. And this is where the church truly embraces, if they receive forgiveness, what it means to be forgiven and to offer forgiveness, because what's the parable that follows after? Huge debt, and oh, he's forgiven and he's so excited. And then a little tiny debt, and he doesn't forgive him, he throws him to prison. And, he goes, and God says, no, 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 you've been forgiven a huge amount. That should influence and flavor how you offer forgiveness. So if a person has done horrible, horrible things, that if they truly repent, that forgiveness is lavished on the person. And this is hard. Um, I would suggest a lot of churches, a lot of communities fail at this because they lack courage. A lot of relationships, a lot of families fail at this because they lack courage. Or or they misunderstand the motive of this process. Or they confuse the motive of the process with, well, we just need to slap their hands. We need to punish them. We need to make them hurt. And that's not at all the purpose. Remember the goal. What's the goal? Yeah, we're going about reconciliation. That's, that's, that's what has to fuel this process. And when it happens, man, we dish out forgiveness. 
We dish it out because like the parable that follows, when I reflect upon what I have, how I have been forgiven, how much Christ has forgiven my rotten heart and my behavior and what I've done, when I really think and reflect about that, oh man, it should be really easy for me to dish out forgiveness in others. See, but Jesus knew that this, the ideal doesn't always become the real, does it? And so, if after all of the many loving attempts, and, you know, step two might take place four different times, right? It's not like it's just one time thing. After the many loving attempts from the church, from the community, if they're unsuccessful, and this is a hard, I hate this, but I don't like this. And especially us, I mean, you know, individualistic Westerners, we, we, don't, we don't like this idea, but it's here. We really have, have no choice but to recognize that the unrepentant person has chosen to, to harden their heart. They, they have chosen to exclude themselves from a community because they have refused to receive forgiveness. That's what they need. And so Matthew 18, 17, the second part of it says... If he doesn't pay attention, even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. So we, you probably know this, tax collectors in first century Rome, very corrupt, and it's in an outward way. They're not doing it secretly. It's a willful, ongoing public corruption where they um, exploit their own people. So he's likening it to that. Uh, let, me, let me read for you what, what one author, one commentator says about this passage. Um, and he says, The church would have no choice but to formally remove them from the fellowship. This doesn't mean that everyone who remains in the church is perfect. We're all sinners. But that's not the issue. The issue is about the one who hardens his or her heart toward their sin and refuses to acknowledge and turn from it. When that happens, the church is obligated by none other than Christ himself to dismiss them from the, recognition, the recognized community of faith. This is a somber and humble but necessary step. Wow, that is, that's very somber, right? Now again, th this is not judgmentalism, right? And we need to be careful that, because this could become that, right? This could become a, Anyone who messes up, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to call you on the carpet, you know, you're out of here kind of thing. It can turn into that if we don't look at the broader context of, you know, these parables that are kind of in, in, uh, influencing all of, all of this piece here. So we need to be really careful that we're not doing that. But again, remember, here's, and here's a really important point too. <clears throat> what kind of person is, is, is Jesus talking about? He's talking about someone who previously bought in. He's talking about someone who was a committed believer, who assumedly had committed to live as a member of the community, right? That's what we need to realize. This isn't like my neighbor. <laughs> this is someone who has said, I'm in, I'm pledging myself to be a member of this community, and therefore I give you hunting license in my life. That's what he's talking about. I think about, there's a, um, if, if, if you're a member of Timberline Church, you've you filled out a ministry covenant. This is something that Pastor Derry talks about if you go into Summit One, if you're a member, um, if, if you're a staff member, you have filled out a ministry covenant. And this ministry covenant is this recognition of saying, I'm buying in, 
I'm stepping into this community. It's not like a life insurance policy, like I just get something. I'm invested. And so we read over and read things like this. This is how it starts out. Recognizing the high privilege and calling that is mine to serve the Lord in ministry in order to build up the body of believers, reach the world for Jesus Christ, I commit to the following. See, this is the kind of person Jesus is talking about. And then saying things like, I will demonstrate uh, Christianity through relationships with people in our community. Ooh, I won't allow interpersonal sin to be there. (laughs) Um, Based on God's genuine love for all humanity. I will protect the unity of the church. Right? I will act in love toward other members. I will refuse to gossip. How many of you knew that was in there? How many of you want to come forward and repent right now? Um, I will uphold biblical standards in relationships, whether living as a single person or in the marriage covenant. Um, I will discover my ministry gifts and express them. Listen to this one. I will receive direction and accept authority and accountability into my life by those who oversee my ministry. Ah, what Jesus is talking about is someone who has, I'm in. This is, this is not an unbeliever. This is not a seeker. This is someone who has bought in, who has said, I'm a part of the community. I'm holding to the values of it, including these values of walking through Matthew 18 when a problem comes. He says, if, if that person is knowingly insistently over a period of time so hardened their heart by sin, guess what? They have become a cancer to your community. And you're doing no service to them and you're doing no service to the church to not confront it, to not go down this path with them. Now, let me give you just kind of a side note here. Um, Let me give you some encouragement and some instruction. Um, What makes this really difficult to, to have, like practically happen. I mean, Pastor Derry, I'm sure, has hundreds of stories of this as a senior pastor for so many years here and at other places. What makes us so different is culturally what's going on. Um, if something goes bad here, you can do what? You can walk to a church from here, right? You could just go to another community. You could just say, yeah, I'm in, you know, right? And, that's, and I'll be there. People come here who... who who have done that. So culturally, we don't have as much of commitment of people saying, this is my community, I'm in. And what I would say to you is, be committed to a community, a church community. Don't just attend, okay? Be involved, why? Because what Jesus has laid out here, this is, these are guardrails, you guys, for your life. This will protect you from interpersonal sin that'll be destructive to relationships. It really, really will. He's not, this isn't a punishing thing. It's a how to live in a safe, God-honoring, flourishing way. Like, man, I want relationships to flourish, right? Here's how you do it. You commit yourself to a community. You sign it, you agree, and when, when you blow it, you receive the forgiveness and you repent. That is what is going on there. And so Jesus makes it clear, really clear, that when you go through steps one, two, three, this process, the person still hardens their heart. It becomes necessary to, man, I hate that, to actually cut off fellowship. And yet, and yet, as Christians, our goal should never be to give up on someone, right? What was, what was the emphasis of our, of our prayer night? Was that a week ago? Prodigals. What's a prodigal? It's the lost sheep who refuses to come home, even when I go out and try to get them. (laughs) 
And so I am never to give up, even on the person who has hardened themselves with sin and gone away. I don't sit in a place of judgmentalism because I also remember how much I've been forgiven. So I never can look down on them. I'm better than you because it's by grace alone. So I'm always constantly going after them. Even, even if the church has excluded someone from, from, from fellowship, those people who know them, they should be attempting to reach out to win them back. After establishing, this is, um, this is where we get to the verse. This is where we get to the passage that we go, okay, this whole two or three gather thing. Take a look at it. After establishing, uh, church has authority to, to act in this way. To, um, Jesus makes a very unique promise about his presence. Read Matthew 18, uh, verse 19 with me, 19 through 20. He says, again, I assure you. Now, this is all in that context. You've, you've had to do this confronting church authority. If two of you, which two is he? Remember, he's talking about, it's not a magic number. He just mentioned, bring one or two. If, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray about, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, that's a whole message on it. Talk about a misunderstood verse, right? <laughs> I grew up in a church which was all about, you can just ask anything you want. No, no, no. He's talking about asking about discipline issues is what he's talking about here. Um, he says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, who are those two or three? Yeah, these are the witnesses from step two, and they're probably involved in step three as well. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Do you see what he is saying here? This is a powerful thing. He's saying this really difficult thing that you have to do, that it's going to take a lot of courage to do, that it's not going to be popular, that you may have fallout with other members because, oh, how dare you treat him like that? I, you know, it's hugely unpopular, and it's hard, and it's hard in our culture. It's going to be really hard to do. He says, I promise I will be with you in a unique way. I'll give you wisdom. I'll bring you guidance. And you have my authority. You're deputized to act in this way. And that should give you a boldness, a quiet boldness, and a confidence, a quiet confidence to walk into that situation and that scenario and have to have the hard conversation. Because he says, I'm going to be with you uniquely from other things because this is so difficult and it's so hard. The words of one author, he writes, in other words, as the church renders judicial decisions on matters of right and wrong, that are based on the truth of God's word, you should be confident that they are doing the right thing and that Christ himself is right there with them, spiritually present in their midst. Do you know why I think Jesus takes time out, tells this parable of the lost sheep, tells this parable of the unmerciful servant, and then he kind of, he grabs them like strings and he ties them up together in a teaching, he wants his, his apprentices to know how to navigate when interpersonal sin that's really destructive, it's really corrosive, comes in when, when sin is, and conflict are just ripe. And he underscores that we have a divine blessing to handle it. We have a divine sanctioning. We can count on God's unique presence to bless our efforts because, this is the last blank to fill in there, Ultimately, we are called to be God's agents of reconciliation. That's your job description. If you if, uh, hashtag accurate movie ac accurate job description, <laughs> it's this: you are called 
to be an agent of reconciliation in relationships and community and families. I, uh, I was texting my, my cousin earlier this week. Um, I have two cousins, two girls. Their um, mom and dad just, they posted on Facebook, just selling their house after living in Minnesota for 51 years. They've been living in this house. That's all she's ever known. She was born there. She grew up there. And um, her dad's health, my uncle, it's just, it's so bad. His, his health is so bad right now that he's, he's got to be moving to home where he can get a little bit more care and that sort of thing. And it's this beautiful, white, two-story home with this gazebo. So she's taking pictures. And, and I just text her, and I said, man, that's got to be hard. It's got to be hard doing that sort of thing. And, and she wrote back, yeah, yeah, it is. And, but she said these words. I'll just read this text to you. She said, um, all of it went really well. I was reminded that while it is sad that this chapter of my life and my family's life is over, it's, it's been a really wonderful, easy, and amazing chapter. And then she said this. She ended this period. No skeletons, no anger, no resentment. We all like each other. And I thought, wow, a lot of families don't end like that after 51 years. No skeletons, no anger. We all like each other. No, I don't know about everyone's perspective in the family, but from Mandy's perspective, I would say ultimately she understands that, I mean, there's lots of conflict in the family, I promise you. There was conflict. But I would suggest, at least from her perspective, they were committed to be agents of reconciliation so that they still liked each other. They still cared for each other. They were somehow at some level applying this gospel truth, imperfectly, but applying it. So here's the best question is, how do I have the power to do that? Because I don't know about you, but I, I like kind of an eye for an eye, baby. You know, you, you do something to me, right? How do I live in that way? Because I don't have the power to do that in myself. And here's what I would suggest, that only if you, if you look at the cross and if you see that Jesus, though he confronted your sin in your life, he took all of the consequences in himself. He took all of that reconciling me to God, forgave me lavishly. That's what that parable is at the end. When I look to Jesus on the cross, when I see the reality of a God who will do anything, go to the end, give his very son to reconcile me, that empowers me, that gives me the power to now go into my circles that are broken and tinged by sin and work toward reconciliation to walk through this step.